I'm glad at least Keith and Kara May made it home. We're already a bit of a short crew, and then Keith and Kara May weren't sure if they'd make it with the weather. That was out west, and then Tim told me last night he was dealing with flooding, and he might not be here. And you certainly don't want me chairing, and for sure not helping with singing. So <laughs> that said, we had some people who were very willing to help in spur of the moment, so appreciative for that. Why don't you turn in your Bible to uh, 1 Timothy 4, and we're going to be looking at the first five verses here this morning. So uh, turn in your Bible to 1 Timothy 4, 1 through 5, and then we'll stand for the reading of God's Word. Now the Spirit expressly says that in later times some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teaching of demons, through the, instin- through the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared, who forbid marriage and require abstinence from foods that God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. For everything created by God is good and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving. For it is, made by, uh, it is made holy by the word of God and prayer. And you can be seated. And we trust God will bless the reading of his word. So after uh, a look at the resurrection from Acts last week for Easter, we're back into our First Timothy series. And to help bring everyone up to speed where we were, uh, last time we were in this series, we looked about how we ought to behave in the household of God. We were reminded that the church is the pillar and buttress of the truth. And the application of this is, is that the church is at the core of God's truth for all of creation. The the Bible is not, uh, to use a big word, we're not to ecclesiasticize the Bible or just limit it to the church. The Bible is God's word for creation, for everything. So we dare not just treat it as though it's just a church book, because it's not. We were reminded that all truth meets at the top because all truth is God's truth in every field. And while God is revealing his truth to all creation, his church is unique in that he has entrusted us with the special revelation of his word, and thus the church does have an important role to play in the world. And we are in a unique position because we can see the world properly. We can see it through the lens of God's law. We can see it through the lens of what God is doing. Uh, We see meaning in history in a way uh, that unbelievers cannot. And so this is why we must be adamant that even though scripture was given to the church in a unique way, its authority is not limited to the church, but to the universe. We're reminded of that in Psalm 24, verse 1, where it says that the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, and the world and those who dwell therein. So all things belong to God. All things must bend the knee to King Jesus. Chapter 3 in our series Uh, ended with a short confession of how Jesus Christ came to earth in the flesh, and this is important. He was raised back to life by the Spirit as a physical man, also important. And then he ascended back to heaven, where he continues to have a physical existence right now. Where is that? We don't know. But Jesus Christ has a physical body right now as he is ruling and reigning over this universe. And we see all this in the little confession at the end of chapter 3. So we're reminded of how God and the material world touch each other in the person of Jesus Christ. And it is through the God-man, through Jesus, that creation begins to start receiving a revived existence. And we looked at that uh, again at Easter. It's through Jesus that the kingdom of God makes landfall and penetrates human history. 
a beachhead for the kingdom of God has been made in this creation and from which to spread, spread out as the gospel goes out to the nations. And what we're about to look at in chapter 4 here is a natural progression of those truths which we just saw at the end of chapter 3. The little confession that the Ephesian church was proclaiming and reminding themselves of and reciting uh, to get the truth of God into them, right? And that's, that's really what preaching and what music is. It's not so much an overflow from us up to God. It's God getting his truth into our bones, and that's why we're preaching the same message from 2,000 years ago. And that's why we sing, is to get God's word into our bones. We have to get it into us so that it can come out. So in verse 1 and 2 here, it says, Now the Spirit expressly says that in later times some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons through the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared. So in Paul's time, because he's living in the age of apostles, direct revelation, new revelation from God is happening still because they are still in the apostolic age. We talked a little bit about that this morning uh, in Sunday school about this shifting in ages, that the church no longer is receiving new revelation. Now the Holy Spirit's job is to impress that body of truth from the scriptures into us, but there is no new revelation. There's no new scripture. The Spirit's job now is to impress it into us uh, so that we can obey it, understand it, and then make application of it. So this is how we uh, understand that Paul knows this by the Spirit, because the Spirit did speak this directly to him. And then we see about later times, and there is also potentially loaded uh, language, right? The last days, the end times, later days, and so forth. When are these times? Well, Since Jesus ascended back into heaven, we have been living in the very last chapter of redemptive history. The the final period of time, since Christ's ascension, is frequently called the last times in the Bible. Uh, And in Hebrews 1, uh, 1 to 3, it talks about this, that this is the last chapter. In former times, God did this, but now that he's ascended, we are living in the last days. So are we living in the last days? Yes. Yes, we are. Just like Martin Luther was living in the last days. Okay? Just like the Apostle Paul was living in the last days. There's really nothing special about these days relative to those days. Every period, every day since Christ has ascended into heaven is now the last days. Okay? Uh, and we will discuss that a little bit more. We don't know when Christ is going to return from glory to judge the earth. And so we need to be careful in the way we talk about this. Frequently people think that the last times is like the next 10 years, right? And for roughly the last 150 years, the last days has been about 10 to 15 years in front of us. Okay? Charles Spurgeon used to joke during the Napoleonic Wars when people saw that this was clearly the end. Clearly Christ is coming back in his own day because all these wars happening in Europe, it must be the last days, right? Uh, and my entire life, the second coming has been about three years out. Okay? And I'm 42, so I'm starting, to, <laughs> I'm starting to question it a little bit. Okay? Uh, the last days just simply refers to this last chapter in history after Christ has ascended back to heaven. We are now living in the last days because Christ is God's final word to his creation. And so that whole span of time from Christ's, from Christ's first coming to his second coming is all the last days. And yes, we do live in those days. Okay? And again, the book of Hebrews was written 2,000 years ago, and the author clearly sees himself as having lived in the last days. 
Then there's the warning. So, so in these latter days, we're not just looking back or we're not just looking forward when people are going to depart from the faith. It's in this whole span of history. From the whole time between Christ's first coming and his second coming, there is going to be people departing from the truth, departing from the faith. This is common to this whole era of history. And what do we understand that, right? So typically we understand, well, things are just getting worse and worse. And, uh, and at the last days, which is three years from now, give or take two years, uh, then there's going to be a real mass defection of people. And it's just going to get worse and worse. But let's look closely and let's think closely about that. If we already understand that the last days is this whole chapter of history and not just an individual slice of a few years... Let's look at familiar passages that talk about this kind of stuff. Like 2 Timothy 3.13. We're probably all familiar with this. Warning. And it says, Well, evil people and impostors will go from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. Okay? They'll go from bad to worse. Well, what does that mean? Does that mean that every decade is going to be worse than the last one? Every century is going to be worse than the previous one? Right? So we can be guaranteed, however bad the 15th century was, the 16th century is going to be even worse, right? Because uh, false teachers will go from bad to worse. But, again, as we discussed this morning at Sunday school, the 16th century was a time of great advance of the gospel of Jesus. The, the, the Reformation happened in this time. World missions took on a new face in this time. And so we would say this was actually a period of advance and of significance. So it wasn't worse than the century before. One way we can look at this is that this isn't just about a, a, a quality or a quantitative element, but qualitative. So it's not just uh, that there's going to be more and more and more bad teaching with time. Rather, follow the course of a false teacher's life. He's going to get from bad to worse. False teachers will go from bad to worse. Okay, how does this work? Well. Fifteen years ago, if you're about my age, you remember a really cool surfing pastor by the name of Rob Bell. Anyone remember Rob Bell? He was cool, right? And he had some really bad ideas that he framed in the form of a question. So he wasn't making a full frontal attack on the church. He was just asking questions. He's just asking questions. Does it really matter? What, what if we found Jesus' DNA and there was no virgin birth? Does it matter? And clearly what was implied was, no, it doesn't matter. Because Christian ethics would still say the same, right? We can still live like John Lennon. Of course, we're all Christians, right? Uh, but it was in the form of questions rather than a full attack on the church. And now today, Rob Bell has no association with the church whatsoever. A false teacher went from bad to worse. Followed the course of his life, okay? I talked about uh, William P. Young in the shack a number of Sundays ago, right? And, and again, here's false teaching coming in the form of an emotionally compelling book of fiction. And, and those who read this book critically uh, saw some serious problems in the book. And they were shushed down by Christians saying, well, it's just a book of fiction. Don't take it so serious. Don't, don't, don't get too worked up about it. Until a few years later, William P. Young wrote a book of theology called Lies Christians Believe. And it turns out that pretty much everything you have been taught to believe about the Bible is a lie. Okay? False teachers go from bad to worse. Follow their life. The fruit, you know, wisdom is justified by her children. The fruit will bear itself out. So when we think about evil men and imposters going from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived, this isn't necessarily just a downward slide through all of history. This is a recurring theme all through history. All through the history of the church, Evil men and imposters have gone from bad to worse. They have. 
Okay? So watch a false teacher getting consistent over the course of his lifetime, and you will see an evil man going from bad to worse. And this isn't a new thing. It was clearly present at the time that Paul was writing to Timothy, and we already saw it even earlier in this book when we looked at Hymenaeus and Alexander. Right? These were false teachers who were kicked out of the church because of their false teaching. Okay? And so we don't need to get worked up or panicked about false teaching or bad doctrine in the church because it's not new. Okay? If our confidence is in the gospel of Jesus Christ, then we can have a calm and steady assurance. We don't need to panic. Don't hit a panic button. Don't uh, hit the eject button. We press on in confident uh, acknowledgement that the scriptures are true and that the gospel is the believer's path to victory and the church's path to victory through her history. And there is the warning that some will depart from the faith. And there are many such warnings in the Bible about people leaving the faith. There's warnings about apostasy. There's warnings about backsliding. And here we have one such warning. People are going to depart from the faith. And then you're reading through the Gospel of John, and you're going to read John 6, verse 37. And you're going to read that all that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. And then you're going to keep reading in your Bible reading plan, and you're going to hit John 10. And you're going to read that I will give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. Huh. And then you're going to keep reading in your Bible program, and you're going to read Romans 8, and there's this golden chain of redemption, that those whom he called, he justified, and those whom he justified, he glorified. There's no dropouts. What do we do with that? How can we faithfully understand the warning passages together with these passages that give us the assurance of our salvation? And, as you know, we can't use one set of Bible verses to beat up another set of Bible verses and cancel them out, right? So that's, that's off the table, right? <laughs> Please, yes? <laughs> right? Good. So what do we do with this? How do we hold this together in a biblically faithful way? Well, one option would be that we can have limited assurance, so, in other words, you might know that you're saved today. But if you can objectively lose your justification, if you can be unadopted from God's family, you'll soon actually see that it's impossible to have the assurance of your salvation. Enough bad behavior tomorrow or the next day or in 25 years from now, if that could nullify and unjustify the grace of God in your life, you could be confident that you're saved today, but you could not know that you will be in heaven. Because at any moment, you could cancel it out. Wouldn't it be odd to say that we inherit eternal life if it turns out that that eternal life is gone in seven and a half years when I really screw up? Is it eternal life? That's like a lifetime warranty that's good until the lifetime of the thing that it's warrantying is done. Right? Well, I bring it in for warranty. Well, yeah, it had lifetime warranty. The lifetime of your microwave is up. So (laughs) your lifetime warranty means nothing. How can we have assurance if God would unadopt us? So if we could lose our objective justification, our righteous standing by God by good behavior, then we also have to ask, how much good behavior does it take to keep me in his grace? And if it's dependent on my good behavior for me to stay justified, for me to be justified, at what point am I telling the truth if I say I'm saved by grace through faith alone? So there are significant issues with saying that we can objectively lose our justification and our standing before God. If this were the case, Christ may have died for our past sins, but not for our future sins, because at any moment, I may screw it up. Another option that some take would, 
be what some mean when they talk about eternal security or once saved, always saved. And this view would say as long as you can remember making a decision, you were at camp or you were at a revival meeting or, or you were at a really emotionally compelling worship event and you made a decision at some point, uh, you're good to go for the rest of your life, no matter how you live. You can live like the devil for the rest of your life, but as long as you can remember that point back there somewhere, then you're good to go. But then the warning passages make no sense. The warning passages give a clear warning that if we're living a life of unrepentant sin, we should really have no confidence whatsoever that we are right with God and on our way to enjoy him. So there's significant problems with saying that ungodly people receive eternal life uh, if they continue on in their ungodliness. If this was the case, the warning passages essentially mean nothing. So where does this leave us? And again, we have to hold these truths together. And I think here's how. It is, in fact, God's grace alone that saves us through faith, with no contribution from us. And so it's God's grace from first to last, from top to bottom, from left to right. But the same grace that justifies us or that declares us righteous also sanctifies us or starts this process in our life of making us holy so that our lifestyle starts to become more and more in line with what God has said we are. He has said you are righteous in Christ And now your life is a process of bringing that into conformity with Jesus Christ. And it's the same grace that's doing it. The grace that God gives us at our salvation or at our justification isn't just a one-time thing that kind of boosts our battery and then leaves us to run on our own steam afterward. God's grace remains with us every step of the way, and he is committed to seeing his children all the way home. God does not leave us on our own steam to grow and be sanctified on our own power. And this is how the the golden chain that we read about in Romans 8 uh, works. And it says in there, And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. So if you're a believer, everything is ultimately working for your salvation. It's working for your good, to conform you to the image of Jesus, to make you fit for heaven. Life is a dress rehearsal for being in the presence of God in our uncorrupted form. And so because it's the Spirit's work in us, conforming us to the image of God, the idea here is that we can have true assurance. You can actually be assured of your salvation. And one of the things that gives you assurance is your growth in holiness. Okay? And so this is why the idea that Scripture presents isn't once saved, always saved. Uh, depending on what people mean by that, I think it's deceptive. Uh, but rather it gives the, the picture of preservation or perseverance, that we continue on. We keep walking in faith. Faith isn't a one-time thing that we do back there. It's an ongoing thing that we uh, work with day by day, year by year. And this doesn't mean we will be sinless. In fact, we may even fall into a prolonged season of sin. But God's Spirit will make sure that God's promises of eternal life do come to reality. The reason we are justified isn't just to go to heaven when we die, but to live a godly life here and now. We are justified so we can glorify God with our lives now. That process starts now of growing in conformity to Jesus Christ. And so this is exactly why the language of once saved, always saved, or eternal security in my mind is not helpful language. It gives the impression that you can be saved without bearing any kind of fruit. 
You just make a decision somewhere, and you're good to go regardless of how you live, as though the Spirit of God would leave you uh, in your sin without any progress. So, what do we understand here in a passage like this when people are departing from the faith? Well, one of two things I think is happening. Either these are true believers who are falling into a destructive pattern of sin and need to be restored and brought back into fellowship with the church. So their joy and their knowledge of their assurance is being robbed from them because they are living in intentional sin. Okay? And an example of this happening might be King David. When he falls into a season of prolonged sin, it becomes very serious. And he adds one more grievous sin to cover up the last one, and it becomes a big deal. And yet when the prophet Nathan confronts him and David sees what he has done and he repents before the Lord because he sees what this has done, he sits down and he writes Psalm 51. And he says, Restore to me the joy of your salvation. Not the fact of your salvation, the joy of it. David was God's man. But David was robbed of his joy. He was robbed of his assurance because he was walking in sin. And the Spirit of God used the prophet Nathan to bring him back to bring David to repentance. So there is a sense in which David fell away. But as a saved man, he eventually found repentance, and his joy and his assurance were restored by the Spirit of God. That's one example. An example on the other side might be that those who are departing are just getting more and more consistent with their unbelief. Okay, So they're falling away from their profession of faith. What they said they were, they weren't, and they are just getting consistent as they depart. So they may have been fooling themselves. From the, like the people in Matthew uh, 7, Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, uh, which I find to be uh, a sobering portion of Scripture, right? These people stand before Jesus, and when confronted, why should they be let into heaven? What do they say? We cast out demons in your name. We prophesied in your name. We, we, we. Look at me. Look at what I did. And what does Jesus say? Get away from me, you workers of lawlessness. I never knew you. Okay? If you're going to stand before God's throne, and he says, why should I let you in? If your answer starts with, well, I, you are in a bad place. The answer is Christ. Okay? I need no other argument. I need no other plea. It is enough that Jesus died and that he died for me. That's the plea we make to the Father. So these men might be like Judas, who, from a distance, appeared to be walking with Christ, but then, whom we find out in John 6, that Jesus says was a devil. Or they may be like the people in 1 John 2, who leave the church, and it says that they went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might become plain that they are not all of us. And so the truth is, for us, we don't know another person's heart. We don't know where they are at with the Lord. And so when they fall into a prolonged season of sin, we can't make a final determination on where this is going to go or what's happening in their heart. And so for us, whatever's happening in their heart, the advice for us is really the same. We don't have to know the outcome. We don't really have to know in one sense what's in their heart because we can't find it out anyway. Uh, The job is to exhort them, to pull them back into a righteous standing with the Lord. You need to be forgiven. You need to quit the sin. You need to be made right again. And this is ultimately what the process of church discipline Uh, is about that we saw earlier in the book that Paul tells Timothy to exercise with Hymenaeus and Alexander. It gets to a certain point where the church has no reason to believe, based on your conduct, that you are a true Christian. That's ultimately what excommunication is. That's saying, based on the fruit of your life, we have no reason to believe you anymore, and you must be put out of the church. 
Okay? And, and the goal is always restorative. Right? And, and we saw that again in chapter 1, where Paul even seems confident that Alexander and Hymenaeus will come back. He says he's handing them over to Satan that they may learn not to blaspheme. So there's even a hopeful note there, that by being out, they may learn their lesson and come back into the church and be restored uh, with their brothers. So ultimately, the goal is always for the good. But this is worth discussing from a pastoral standpoint of what is happening because I think it's important for people to actually have assurance. Many people struggle with this. God's promise that he will never leave us or forsake us and that he will perfect that work which he has begun in us, those are real promises. Assurance of your salvation isn't just something to be thought about, but it's a pillow to rest your head on. If you are trusting in the Lord Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins today, you can be assured, not just for today, but you can be assured that your eternity with Christ is, uh, is set. He promises by his spirit he will get you all the way home. And you see both sides of this coin in a passage like Philippians 2, 12 and 13. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your salvation with your fear and trembling. Okay, so that's what we have to do. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Why do we do this? Verse 13 says, For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. So his spirit doesn't just come for our conversion and then leaves us. He's continuing to work so that we can and will work out our salvation with fear and trembling. And to put it in an analogy this way, think if you've got teenagers in the house who are starting to drive, uh, you might give a warning to your teenagers and say, uh, you know what, if, if you don't fuel up your car before you leave, you're not going to make it to your destination. Okay? And that warning is true. And one kid says, yeah, I know, and drives off anyway and runs out of gas. <laughs> okay? And the next kid sees that warning as a reminder for why he should fuel up before leaving. Okay, the warning is equally true for both of them, but you see how the warning does something different depending on the disposition of your heart. Okay? If you are soft and repentant, that warning will do, uh, make sure that it doesn't lead to that. Uh, and if we are hardened, we don't care. We just keep driving on. So in the case of Alexander and Hymenaeus, or in the case of these men here who are departing from the faith, uh, we don't know what their final outcome is. The Bible never says. We don't know if they're restored or, or if they stay uh, in their unbelief. It appears from here that these are probably genuinely unsaved people who are permanently dropping out of the church as an act of their own consistency. They are devoted to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons. And verse 2 calls them liars whose consciences are seared. And it's interesting to contrast the language of the Bible with the way modern Christians talk. Right? We want to be winsome at any cost. And of course, we don't want to be offensive. The gospel is offensive enough, so our bad attitude shouldn't be getting in the way. But how much garbage is allowed into the church because Christians want so desperately for the world to love us? So we have no courage. We have no confidence. And this is why the saying is true that soft preaching results in hard hearts. Okay? If there is a stony heart, feather duster preaching is not going to get to it. Hard preaching, however, does create soft hearts. When the jackhammer of God's law breaks up that stony heart so that softness and repentance can come in, something is happening. Okay? And so enough with the soft, tepid preaching. We need gospel preaching that confronts us in our sin and then comforts us with God's grace. And notice here that Paul is not looking for common ground or shared commitments 
with which to enter into a dialogue with these men? What does he say? He says they devoted themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons, and that they're insincere liars whose consciences are seared. Now, can you imagine some modern-day interfaith thing, if that's the way you're going to talk about your dialogue partner? They're probably not going to come back for, for another round of dialogue, right? See how different the biblical kind of language is from what we've become accustomed to in our age? It's so different. It's so different. It's obvious that Paul sees the false teaching and departure from the faith as something that is very serious, and it's going to harm Christ's bride if it isn't dealt with sharply. And it's hard work. And for one to do it effectively, he must really have an understanding of the glory of God and what God's mission for his church is, how he wants to see people grow in holiness, how he wants to see that sin being put to death in their life and sinful habits being put behind us. And it's hard work. But if one has zeal for the church, it's worthwhile work. And Paul stands at the front end of a long line of men who have been engaged in this work through the history of the church. And there's many men that we know today as heroes because they're safely buried in the ground and they can't thunder at us anymore. But they refuse to make friends with the spirit of the age and we regard them as heroes today. Right? And you think of men like Athanasius, who said he felt like he stood against the entire history of the, or not the history, but the entire breadth of the church in his own day, defending the divinity of Jesus Christ, when it seemed like the whole world would just have Jesus be a man and nothing more. Or Augustine, who spent his entire ministry uh, refuting the, the heretic Pelagius about the grace of the gospel. Or Boniface, who was a missionary to Germany, and who, when he was told, well, you can't touch Thor's oak, there's this big oak tree in town, and you can't touch it because these people see it as sacred. So what does Boniface do as a faithful missionary? He grabs out his axe and he chops the tree down in front of everybody. Right? I don't, I'm not scared of your God because my God is the living God. My God wins this contest. Boniface was a force to be reckoned with. Or Luther, who spent his entire ministry involved in controversy with every religious authority in his life, but knowing that he had a saving gospel, he persevered. Kelvin, who had people name their dogs after him and throw rocks in his window because they didn't like what he did, or who made fun of him after his wife died. He pressed on, writing himself to death. Or John Knox, when he was ordained in Scotland, who cried, he ran out of the room crying when he was called to the ministry because it was such a serious task. But then, who was a man of conviction, landed in Scotland like a torpedo, going toe-to-toe with Bloody Mary, so that she said that she didn't fear all the armies of Europe like she feared the prayers of John Knox. This was a courageous man. Or Jonathan Edwards, who pastored and served as a missionary to the Indians, and then became the president of Princeton Seminary, who was voted out of his church, 200 against 5, because he refused to compromise. Or George Whitfield, who had to preach in the open air because he was excommunicated from the Church of England and who had dead cats thrown at him while he was preaching and people playing trumpets and banging drums so people couldn't hear him. He persevered. Or Spurgeon, who fought the religious liberalism that was creeping into the British Baptist Union and he also was excommunicated and served as a brave and happy warrior for a whole group of young pastors who would come after him. These men all fought hurt. They played hurt their entire career, and they learned it well from the Apostle Paul, who's willing to play hurt for the sake of the gospel. 
Humanly speaking, if it weren't for plain-spoken men like these and the courage of them, the church would have died a hundred deaths through history. And it has well been said that nine times out of ten, it's the coarse word that condemns an evil and the refined word that excuses it. We use soft language, and softness enters the church. But Paul and this long line of men that have followed him show us that softness doesn't reap the rewards that faithfulness does. Plain speech in the face of false doctrine is absolutely necessary. In fact, to engage in a respectful dialogue with those who promote heresy is to actually lend credibility to their position, as though this is an admissible position to hold in the church. And, of course, not every difference of doctrine is a difference of orthodoxy or heresy. There's many things over which sound, conservative, orthodox, biblical Christians may have differences, and that is fine. But when it comes to the core matters of the Christian gospel, we cannot negotiate. We push for unconditional surrender because we have confidence in the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. And the form of false teaching that Paul is addressing specifically here that was most prevalent in this time was a heresy called Gnosticism. Gnosticism was a kind of mystery religion that emphasized private revelations and ecstatic emotional experiences with God. It involved a heavy dose of secret knowledge. Okay? And so where Christianity is built on words and historical events and rebirth of the heart through the gospel of Jesus, Gnosticism was built on an emotionally compelling experience in forms, uh, and in various forms of rule-keeping that came from that experience. And a strong emphasis in some branches of Gnosticism was placed on oneness with the universe, being absorbed back into the universe. And because of this mindset, a sharp, sharp division was made between the spiritual world and the physical world. The spiritual world is good. The physical world is evil. And so salvation is ultimately about escaping creation. Salvation is about escaping your body, escaping matter, escaping food, escaping stuff. Because the material world is evil. And when your soul is finally released from the prison of your body, that's when you are free. That is Gnostic teaching. And if that's the, the, the framework you're working with, it's not hard to see how sin is put in things like food, sex, property, etc. The Gnostics forbade these things because they were physical and therefore evil. And so the final act of salvation was for us to die so we could finally be rid of these physical bodies. And biblical Christianity, in contrast, in its true forms, has always been creation-affirming. Creation affirming, not creation denying. God created a physical world and called it very good. Jesus took on human flesh in order to start the process of redeeming flesh and human beings. And the resurrection is a reminder that separation of spirit and body is unnatural and temporary. Not, that's not the final act of salvation. Uh, it's a step on the way there when we're given our bodies back. So the last act of salvation isn't discarding with the physical, it's redeeming it in its physical form. And in Romans 8, you see this kind of language where it talks about creation is groaning, waiting to be redeemed. Creation's going to be redeemed. Creation is going to be redeemed. Salvation isn't God throwing creation away so we can just be these uh, you know, ethereal vapors in heaven. A new heaven and a new earth is coming. Creation is groaning and waiting to be redeemed. And so we don't formally have the Gnostic religion today, right? At least I'm not aware of the 
10th Gnostic Church of Philadelphia, although I haven't gone looking, but I'm assuming it's not there. But it's not hard to see how strongly the ideas live on, even in the church today. We see it in the form of Eastern spirituality. Right? And so there's so much emphasis on unity and on oneness and on being absorbed back into deity. And this is why, frankly, ideas like socialism or uh, you know, the right kind of public education and public solidarity are all seen as a kind of utopia or a pathway of salvation. Right? It's oneness. There's no creature-creator distinction. We all have to be back absorbed into this oneness. That's the way of our salvation, and that is alive and well, unfortunately, to this very day. And we see wide swaths of it in the church, right? And, and that They're not announcing a savior which comes to rescue us from the outside, but they're getting us deeper into ourselves through ecstatic experiences, right? Through these mystical experiences, I've got to get deeper into myself. Well, that's the problem is what's deep inside me. Okay? Somebody give me good news, not good advice. I'm the problem. Get me out of me. The point isn't being absorbed back into the universe. It's to see that I am a creation and I need to be united to the creator. But there's a clear distinction there. The goal is not oneness in the sense of Eastern spirituality. And so we have to be careful about the evangelical emphasis today on ecstatic inner experience. It can be very destructive. Right? And we see it in other forms, when marriage and raising a family and paying off a mortgage are seen as kind of sub-spiritual. That's what less spiritual people do. Spiritual people, the people who are really sold out for Jesus, they take a vow of poverty and celibacy and they go into full-time Christian ministry. That's the really spiritual people. The rest of us can be workers and breeders. Okay? And I've actually heard that kind of language. <laughs> So I'm not, I'm not just making it up. Okay? This kind of thinking is also prevalent at funerals, where even Christian ministers far too frequently talk about the body going into the ground as though it's a useless wrapper. But the good stuff, the insides, the candy, the, the part that we want, that remains on, but we've discarded with this useless wrapper. How unchristian. The talk of that suggests that the current disembodied state of our loved ones is the final chapter, and it's not. The resurrection is the final chapter. And we just came through Easter, we have a powerful reminder for us that the physical world is so important to God that he made it, and then he sent his son into that world in human form and called him out of the grave and ascended back to heaven in bodily form. Creation matters. Christianity is a creation affirming religion. Or as one clever British theologian said, there is life after, life after death. Okay? So the modern attempt to blend Eastern spirituality with biblical Christianity is a holdover from Paul's day. It's as old as the New Testament. And it's no surprise then that many of the demands are so similar, as we'll see. Right? These people are forbidding marriage, verse 3, and require abstinence from foods that God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. So marriage is devalued in Gnosticism and, in some places, in our own day, because it involves physical people. And physical people, if they're getting along, have a habit of creating more physical people in the confines of their marriage. Okay? So it's not hard to see how marriage and child-rearing came to be frowned upon. 
And it's also easier to see how then in the medieval ages, when this kind of teaching reared its head again, that there was an emphasis on getting out of the world and into the monastery, right? Again, take a vow of poverty, take a vow of celibacy, get out of the world. That's your salvation. It was creation denying. But it's also easy to understand in our own day how so many evangelical young people are getting pulled back into this through certain ministries and parachurch organizations which are promoting a new kind of mysticism and a new kind of monasticism. It's making yet another round. But if sin is in stuff instead of in us, rules around food do make sense. And this may have been compelling to the early Christians because they remember in the Old Testament there were actually some food laws. There were dietary laws. But these laws were not put in place because the foods themselves were bad, but to separate God's people, to make them stand out, right? So there's nothing inherently wrong with eating pork. It was just a way to have God's people stand out from the nations around them. But it's clear in the New Testament that these dietary laws are terminated in Christ. And now all food is good and lawful for us, provided we receive it with thanksgiving. But we still live in religious times. And so, we have our own food guidelines. You've maybe noticed that if you're really a good person, you'll eat organic, non-GMO, vegan, locally produced food, right? A new kind of food righteousness. And all of these things, on their own, can be perfectly good, with the possible exception of veganism. But, if you want organic bread, buy it. Enjoy it to the glory of God. If you prefer to spend a bit less money and enjoy conventionally produced bread, good. Buy it and eat it to the glory of God. Eat it with thanks. If you want your eggs locally grown by some neighbor kids, buy them. It's good. Enjoy them. And if you want coffee imported from Colombia, get it. It's good. Import it. Pay what you want for it. It's good. If you want chocolate from Switzerland, make sure you order 50% more than you want because it's actually really good. Okay? But... (laughs) Being a food Pharisee is no more honorable today than it was in Paul's time. The key to Christian maturity here isn't what we're eating, but making sure that we receive it with thanksgiving from God. And isn't it incredible that we live in a time where we can get all the best foods from all around the world into our kitchens for such an incredibly low cost, and then how unthankful we are for it. Never has a group of people had so much and been so ungrateful for it. Provided we're being wise stewards and we aren't being self-indulgent, this isn't something to feel guilty for. It's something to be thankful to God for. And this is actually true of all of God's gifts. Whether it's a faithful wife, laughing children, a car that got us from point A to point B, a house that keeps us warm, God gets the glory in all of it when we are giving thanks to him for these material blessings. Feeling ashamed and feeling guilty doesn't help those who need help. And it doesn't honor God who is pleased to give good gifts to his children. And lastly, in verse 4 and 5, it says, If everything created by God is good, and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving, for it is made holy by the word of God and prayer. And this this just summarizes everything we've just looked at. Creation is good. Creation is good. Where other religions attempt to escape creation in the physical world, one way that we as Christians have an opportunity to stand out in the world is by affirming the goodness of God's creation and also its permanence. It's permanent. Yes, it's fallen. Yes, it's under a curse. But as Easter reminds us, Christ is at work making it new. And notice that the promise in Revelation isn't that Christ is making all new things. What's he doing? He's making all things new. 
Okay? He's not starting from scratch. He's making all things new. And the problem with sin in this world isn't in this stuff. It's in us and in our fallen sinful hearts. So while the world may want to ban guns and fossil fuels and red meat and big gulps, to the unbelieving mind, this actually makes sense. The unbelieving mind thinks that government programs and more education and additional regulations will somehow save our souls because unbelief operates on the assumption that the human soul is basically good. And so the only way we can account for evil in the world is if the evil is in systems or in stuff. Okay? But Christians have a different explanation. The problem is here. The problem is me, not the stuff. The stuff is just stuff. It's doing what it's designed to do. Only the gospel of Jesus is able to penetrate the heart of the unbelieving person and get to the root issue. Everything created by God is good, and nothing is to be rejected as long as we receive it with thanksgiving. And if we can do that, it says here that all this stuff is made holy. Praying as a family at mealtime is actually a perfectly fitting custom in light of verse 5. Our food and our ability to get that food all come from God. We don't know what it's like to be hungry, but many of our grandparents or great-grandparents did. And we have the opposite problem almost of being wasteful and careless and ungrateful because we're just used to there being lots of food all the time. But the fact that we have in our living memory people who knew what it was like to live through war and to be hungry should keep us humble enough to really think about being thankful to God for all the stuff we take for granted. And being thankful also means that instead of being wasteful and careless, we'll think about our neighbors who may not have enough. And then we can flow over with generosity to help them. But let's remember that God's gifts come in the, in the form of ordinary things like food, work, vehicles, a spouse, pleasant memories, a house, or anything else that you can think of. These things are all good because everything created by God is good. So we need to be, hang- be humble, be thankful, and enjoy these gifts to the glory of God with hearts full of thanks. Let's pray. Father God, we want to thank you as the king of creation. We praise you as the king of creation. Lord, you made it good. And our job is not to get out of here, but our job is to be made new by your spirit and then to see you working in history, in your creation, to redeem it, to bring it to that point where your son will come back and judge the living and the dead and make all things new and perfect and incorruptible. Lord, we thank you for the reminder of resurrection at Easter. We want to thank you that you are pleased to... to, Bless us in physical ways, in a physical creation. And I pray that we would have thankful hearts as we ponder what it means that you have blessed us with things, with bodies, with food. And I pray that we would be thankful and that we would enjoy it with a clear conscience. Amen. So, the charge is this. The seduction of unbelief is never far away. God's people have always been tempted to negotiate with evil rather than to kill it. In many ways, the Christian life is a bare-knuckle fist fight against unbelief, compromise, and self-righteousness. We need to work out our salvation with confidence and assurance because God has already worked it in. We dare not give ourselves to things God has told us to avoid, but we also dare not avoid the things that God has given us to enjoy with thanksgiving. So this week, look around and take note of all the things God has given to you, a faithful spouse, a supportive friend, a job that puts food on the table, the laughter of a child, a well-prepared meal, or a mortgage that you're making progress on. Ask God for eyes to see these ordinary things with the wonder of a young child. 
so our hearts can become younger and more joyful. And then give thanks to your Heavenly Father for making all these things holy. And I'll give you the benediction from Psalm 16, 9 through 11. Therefore, my heart is glad and my whole being rejoices. My flesh also dwells secure. For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol or let your Holy One see corruption. You make known to me the path of life. In your presence, there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Then go in thanks.